Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. This time on the show, we're lucky enough to be talking to Carl Tobiner, Head of Security at Copardo, I believe it is, which is which you've just told us before the call means cool in Spanish, which is very interesting. So Yeah, nice to know, be here. We know that's the one place you'll never work, Chris. <laughs> it's too cool for me. <laughs> exactly. Way too cool. So thank you very much for the show. We, we, we've been wanting to talk for a little while. Um, Kyle and I have known each other for a couple of years now. We actually presented at B-Side San Francisco uh, pre-pandemic. So that's what, like seven years ago now? I don't know. It feels like seven In years. Dog years. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I think you, you actually presented, at, uh, you repeated your presentation at this year's B-Side San Francisco as well, didn't you, Kyle? Yes, I did. Yeah. Great. Well, it sounds like a, a great place to start, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, like, give us a quick TLDR of who you are so all the listeners know. Sure. So I am now a, a head of security at a small startup. Prior to that, I spent 10 years at Salesforce, got to see them through semi-small into very big, which was really fun. My background is application security primarily, but now I get to do all of it, which is an exciting change. Nice. So going from from that slice to everything seems like a big jump. And I, and I know we'll touch on that a little bit later on, but I really wanted to start by talking about your B-Side San Francisco presentation, the one that was so good, they asked you to come back and give the same presentation again. Um, you know, people often struggle with trying to figure out where their careers are going. And you had a great premise for growing your career and teaching other people how to grow their career. So maybe you can give us a, a quick, uh, quick discussion of what you presented. Yeah, and I would say that, that that talk was a little bit controversial because I think some people took it the wrong way. So it, it, I'll give myself a little bit more background. I love board games. Uh, I run or ran pre-pandemic a giant board game meetup in San Francisco, played board games every week. So like, I like to think about what are the rules and how do I optimize them for success? Oh, sorry, I've got to ask, what's your favorite board game? I have a lot. Codenames is probably my favorite to bring out in most settings because it's just so fun. It's easy to get everyone involved in Codenames. But uh, when it's me and my friends, Blood Rage is awesome. <laughs> wow. So how are you breaking the rules about uh, about careers and security to get back on track? Yes. So this was a framework I came up with a long time ago where uh, I felt like I had to be, I'm not always the most direct social person. Like I don't, naturally reach out to people, get coffees, those sorts of things. But that's an important part of making connections in a business setting and sort of building your network. So I made a systematic plan to attack that. So I have a spreadsheet where I list basically everyone that I consider a stakeholder, a friend, a mentor, and I just track when was the last time I talked to them? What did I talk to them about? When should I next talk to them? And it's a little system for me to say, oh, I haven't kept up with this person in a while. They're a big supporter of mine. I should go connect and see what's going on with them. And so I tried to present this as a framework of, you know, using this for people like me who maybe have trouble doing this kind of networking, making it systemic, making it more approachable. And I think some people really got it and are like, wow, this is really great. I, 
I get how this could help me. And other people are like, you're, you're, you know, monetizing your friendships. You're, you're, you're being fake. And to me, you know, that, that's not what it is. It's, this is a business. This is my job. I have to get good at these things. And I recognize where I'm not. And I try to improve that. That's, that's just standard practice in a, in a technical sort of field. I mean, I find it, I, I, I saw the presentation and I was one of those people who took it as, wow, this is a great idea because I often struggle with that aspect of telling people what I'm working on, right? That, you know, you get stuck in that doing mode of doing the work and, and knowing you've done good work, but then you never really tell people that you've done good work and you never say to them, did this work help you? You know, if, if I could do this again, what would be the one thing I could do to make that work more useful for you to kind of grow those relationships, help other people um, inside your company and outside the company, right? So I, th I thought it was great. I thought it was a, a good way of structuring it, especially for someone who's so scatterbrained and you just end up thinking, someone, someone knows I did good work, right? And then you realize a year later, no one knows you did that thing. Exactly. So, unlike you, Chris, I have a very public-facing role at Akamai. I mean, my team does a lot of research. We do publications. We've got reports we put out. But even today, I found out that some of the people I work with on a regular basis didn't know about some of those public-facing efforts, didn't know that we're, we're the people who go out and talk to people, to press, et cetera. Um, and it, so it's, it's interesting that even if you think you're doing a good job of it, sometimes people, people just haven't heard the message despite the 500 emails, despite you talking about it in meetings. You're right, Cut. Kyle, you've got to just kind of go in and reaffirm that because even some of our best friends don't track us on a daily basis and it's up to us to go out and, and actually talk to them about it. And it's a, it's a vital part of, of um, our career paths. Yeah, and I feel like if you're not proactive, you're reactive. And so you're just waiting to find out who bumps into you and comes to ask you for something. And maybe they're a supporter of yours, maybe they're not. If you're proactive, you can target the people that you know support you, champion you, want to level you up, and go in and say, how can I help you? And then working with those people is often going to be better for your career than the people who are just you know, coming by trying to take things from you. And you actually just use a phrase that I like to use because a lot of our job in security, it may not seem like it, but it's about influence. And so how can I help you? Those five words just... Uh, open a lot of doors and when you actually deliver on some of that and people start seeing what you've done for them to make them more successful it, it feeds back uh, in a really big way yeah some of my best ideas have come from talking to someone who i wouldn't traditionally think i needed to talk to or needed to work with and just asking how can i help you they have a problem and i'm like actually there's a way i could solve this let me help yeah that becomes increasingly important as you go up the levels right and he's like i mean i yes. remember joining google when i joined like i was part of a team i was new on the team and you just do you do the grind work you do the good work and then as you kind of go up those layers and you become like a tech leader you become a manager of a team it's less about your individual work and it's about understanding what everyone else needs and making sure that those needs get met right um and i think that if you don't talk to people and you're just guessing what they want that, does, that doesn't really serve you or them. You know, I think having those conversations up front really does, does smooth things out. Yeah. So while we're talking about careers, one of the other things I really wanted to touch on, I've, I've seen a couple of your uh, great TikTok videos um, on various subjects, but the ones you've been doing recently are kind of 
taking a look at entry-level job positions in the uh, infosec arena and uh, poking fun at some of the uh, some of the requirements of entry-level job positions lightly poking yeah um how's how's the feedback been on that kind of what i expected but stronger so I, I got this idea because someone had asked me on TikTok, actually, you know, what do you suggest for an entry-level security role? And so, you know, I jumped on LinkedIn, wanted to provide some concrete examples, and it felt like I went through 30 or 40 jobs, and each one of them had a years of experience requirement that was three, five, seven years, and I was like, okay, one or two of these labeled as entry-level, that's, you know, that could be a mistake, but 40 of them in a row, I was like, this is, this is bananas like clearly something's wrong here so i just 16 years of of windows 10 experience like he's like how does this even work right right so i i decided to just throw up a video talking about how i thought this was nonsense and the response was kind of staggering so many people in cybersecurity, not in cybersecurity, just coming back and saying this is my experience straight out of college, super demoralizing. I can't find an entry-level job because everybody wants me to have five years experience to qualify for the entry-level job and pay. So my question is, how much of that is the hiring managers in security putting forth these false uh, um, requirements? How much of it is actually coming from the HR teams that just have no clue as to what a security career uh, is what is required for a security career. I actually want to build a better data set on this because I only have a, f a few number of data points, mostly my own. I know in my experience, when I'm working with recruiters, they'll write the job description for you if you let them. And I just, I never let them. Like I have very specific goals on the kind of people I want to attract to my team, the kind of diversity I want to build in my team. And so I try to write a job description that is welcoming and inviting to people who are maybe changing careers from engineering into security or IT into security. And I think putting years of experience on a job description is a really bad practice because it it harms diversity there's been research that's shown that people will not apply for jobs that they don't qualify for and you know even if you're willing to accept like even if i was willing to accept someone who had less than five years experience putting five years there cuts out a huge segment of the population who i might want to attract to my job well let's be let's be clear about it it does not necessarily cut out people that look like me white older right. males Yes. It cuts out people who are female. It cuts out people who are, are who we need in this this space to be there. And so I'm very glad to hear someone like you talking about making a concrete effort to hire for diversity's sake. I mean, not because somebody is different, but because they fit a need. You're you're trying not to cut them out with stupid requirements that don't actually affect the job. Exactly. Yeah, I, I feel pretty strongly that especially when you're hiring for an entry-level position, the set, the, the key requirements that you're listing, this should be like, if, if you have these three things, then come and talk to us and we'll see where you fit, right? If you list 15 things that you must be, you must be aware of all of these different technologies, you must have all this experience, people are not going to apply and then you're going to get only a subset of people. And those subset of people are either vastly overqualified for the job or are very good at lying to you about their experience, neither of which you necessarily want for an entry-level position. Exactly. Are and you breathing? Can you learn? 
<laughs> exactly, entry level. Yeah, and I feel like I had pretty good success hiring at the entry level at Salesforce. I found great candidates for application security who were undergraduates, not even graduate students, who just had a ton of passion, had found their ways into like the CTF team at their school and were really interested. And giving them an opportunity propelled them to really great things. One of them's at Google now. One of them's at Facebook. Some are still at Salesforce. Like they've been very successful. And it just showed like they didn't need years of experience to come in and be good at the job I wanted them to do. I'd much rather... I mean, this is kind of self-serving. I'd much rather hire someone who's you know, interested in the job, motivated. They go out there and they, they learn for themselves and they show that kind of get up and go rather than someone who's just like, well, I went to university and did this, right? I, I know I'm saying that as someone who didn't go to university and did this, so it's very self-serving. But <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if you go to university and learn something for two years, it's a very structured environment. It's great. You've, you've learned all these things that everyone else in your class has learned. Whereas if you go off and you learn it yourself, you've shown that you have that desire to continue learning new things and you come out of that experience knowing different things than everyone else. And that's what really brings the variety uh, to, to the kind of jobs that we do, right? If everyone knows the same thing, we're all going to do the same thing in the event of an incident, right? Whereas what you need is that outlier is like, is this really the right thing to do? Or is that just what you learn at university? Right. And I mean, I know some of the people I work with have degrees and things that are have absolutely nothing to do with security. Uh, one of one of um, our managers is a, a um, chemist by trade. Uh, actually, more than one, I think. So we, you have people that are coming from a different background, a different thought process, and it actually brings a lot to the the organization to have that sort of diversity of thought patterns and and complementary or or conflicting um, ideas on what can make a company better. So wait, wait, just, just to clarify something, you're in Florida, right? And and your coworker well, is a in, chemist. She she's in in Boston. So oh, okay. uh, and then I withdraw yeah. the statement. Then I was just thinking. The first thing I thought was, it's a chemist in Florida. I mean, the jokes just write themselves. Oh yes. My background: I I went to San Francisco State and I got my degree in zoology. And my first sort of attempt at a career was animal behavior. And I had a job in Thailand. I was studying monkeys. Didn't like it. Came back to San Francisco for tech. But some of that experience, some of what I learned in school, I still apply to this day. I mean, animal behavior, human behavior. I think, I think that experience dealing with monkeys is, is the exact experience you need to manage a team in technology, right? Yes. You, you can it means put the you... poop down. <laughs> You still have a chance, Chris. I was wrong. I still do. Yes. <laughs> I, st I still have a future. This is great. So, um, so what are the, what are the next steps for the, for the entry level review stuff? Are you, you going to keep doing this or is this more of a, you know, being there, poke the bear, pointed out that these things are silly, time to move on to something new, or is this now your new passion? I mean, I'll probably do a few more, but I want to balance them with some calling out sort of ridiculous jobs, but some also finding actual entry-level jobs and discussing how can you get this job? Because I think that's something that a lot of people on TikTok has a much younger user base. And so when I'm speaking on TikTok, I get a lot of comments about, you know, I'm in high school, how do I move into security? And those are the people that I am desperate to talk to. I love talking to those people. And so giving them tips and advice, I think is a, like I look at TikTok as a way to kind of scale mentorship you know, it's very hard to maintain a huge pack of people that you're mentoring. 
And but in TikTok, you know, you can do one to many and you can speak out very broadly to the kind of audience that needs that help a lot. So I, I get people reaching out to me through LinkedIn as it's part of the older generation. Um, people still use LinkedIn. And uh, but you know, asking like, how do I get this entry level position? I actually had someone reach out to me today before the podcast, uh, ironically, and uh, and and ask, you know, how do how do I get this entry level position? And I found myself falling back to what's always been like kind of my truth when I came up in technology. But when I came up in technology, security wasn't a degree you did. It was maybe it was a master's or it was a, an elective if you went to university or it was just something you grew up in, right? Doing, you know, hacking on things um, in the traditional sense. Um, but it was like, if you want a job in security, you need to get a job in a company doing something else and then work your way towards security, which was always the avenue that everyone I knew took, right? They were a developer and then they started to write secure libraries and then they became that guy and, you know, that girl who could do that stuff and you suddenly then become like part of the security team or you do server security and you work on, you know, various different elements of that. Is that still true though? Do you you still think that's accurate or are we still leading people in the wrong direction now? I think there is still plenty of room for people to come up that way. I think the challenge that I see is that the the college programs are creating generalists, cybersecurity generalists, and most companies are not hiring generalists, especially the bigger ones that have lots of open security roles. You know, we're hiring an application security person, a network security person, you know, someone for the red team. And so if you're a generalist, you're always going to get outcompeted by people who have more specific knowledge. So I try and tell people, pick a line of work that you think looks really fascinating that has a decent number of entry-level jobs. Like one of the most common is like a SOC analyst. And target the technologies that they're looking for and study those. Just get to know them. There's plenty of ways to figure out what people are working on, download the help manuals, get practice with those tools. You don't have to have on the job experience, you just have to know how to get through an interview. And I think that can set you <laughs> up to get, you know, get that advantage because once you're in the door, then you're going to learn a ton, um, pick up all that experience, but you need to get through the interview to get in the door. And that's where most people get stuck. You know, I would actually, I would say that's not entirely true. I mean, I'm a generalist. I, I spent about uh, eight years, six years doing QSA work. In fact, Salesforce was one of the first uh, uh, clients I worked with as a QSA years and years before your time. Um, <laughs> Now's the but, time to uh, apologize. Yeah. Uh, I, I have found that, that getting that wide knowledge base, and I'm not talking like CISSP wide knowledge base, that's, that's an inch deep. I mean, but of actually seeing all these different organizations of being a consultant and, and going and finding out what different people think I mean, Chris said something about you doing something similar of, of going and talking to a lot of the CISOs that you know to find out about about what they think and about, um, well, basically get you some advice on your first 45 days of being a CISO. 100%. Yeah. Um, I talked to, I don't know, maybe 15 or 16 CISOs in the last 180 days, um, some more than others, but... I found that having that access to to mentorship, having access to people who would talk to you and just tell you what something looks like gives you a huge advantage when you're going into to interviews because people, I mean, so I think when you talk about being a QSA, 
for a lot of these entry level people, that is way more specific than the general education that they've been given. For a lot of these people, they're, you know, an IT help desk person and they go and take the security plus and that's the education that they have in security and they're trying to find their way to the next job in security and they're bouncing up against, oh, you don't, you don't know this IBM product. You don't know that, you know, you don't know Splunk. And they're like, how do, how do I get that experience? So that's where even for a more generalized security role, it's more specific than they're even capable of, if that makes sense. And let's be honest, I think help desk is a, a very valuable starting spot place. Totally. Because, hey, it's, it's where I started. So you can move beyond that into security. But I think some of those same rules you're talking about apply later in the career. And then there's the other end of it. What about people like Chris and I are getting old and, and starting to come wind down the career? What do we do? <laughs> it's a legit question. I mean, I mean as, as you get further on in your career, it's, it's a question of, you know, do, do you go to become a CISO? Do you go to become a manager? Do you, you know, where do you go when, when you've spent your time maybe as a specialist in a very focused area, right? Um, maybe so focused it's one company specific where your your skill set is so focused you don't necessarily have marketable skills in other areas. <laughs> and where, where do you go once you hit that point where you're like... That sounds very personal. Oh, God, I'm having a moment here. But you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, this is very highly specific stuff. What's that next step? And it's like, oh, wow, this is daunting. What is that next step? I have I have seen the rise of the the BISO or the business information security officer or some companies call them their security partners. And a lot of these people are just like old, jaded, just like you, Chris, just like perfect at Hi. the end of their career, they have a walker. I'll and take they it. Just need- <laughs> I'll take it. My physio will be glad that I finally get a walker. <laughs> I mean they those jobs they they need someone experienced with influence, but they don't necessarily need a manager. You know, they've got a CISO, they've got, you know, a leadership structure, but they need the skills that someone super senior brings. So they're paying very senior salaries for someone who probably could go be a CISO, but just wants to be an individual contributor. And I think those are really interesting roles for a lot of people. I mean, I guess there's always going to be that role for the person who can translate between technology and business. And it's one of those skills you grow as you, as you get, further on in your career it's like you start you start your career with this is this is wrong security need says you need to do this and then by the time you're 10 years in you're like yeah but i also understand the business is not going to be able to do that in three months so how can we minimize the risks and you know make sure we're visualizing this to leadership and at that point you're like oh i've 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 turned a corner in my life and either you're very happy with it or there's a therapist um depending on how you feel but um I'm glad that there's a role for those kind of people. Um, But I always wonder about, you know, if you stop learning at that point, you know, you've reached that point, you stop learning. How quickly does it, does it drop off? Because technical knowledge is king in this industry, especially with security. That's true. Yeah. I haven't done that role. So I don't know. I do know that interviewing for, for the CISO kind of position was the first time in my life, at least, where suddenly the majority of the interviews were not technical. And I was like all ramped up for these technical interviews, ready to go. And they didn't really test my technical knowledge at all. It's like, here's the head of sales. What are you going to do for me? Oh, this is not what I was expecting. It was a very interesting interviewing experience for sure. 
Well, I think that you you both brought up a, a very important point, which is security in general has stopped being the authoritative type of leadership of saying you must do this, you must do that. Security as a industry has to be more of the influencer of saying this is what's best for the company in this aspect. But I hear what you're saying about timelines. I hear what you're saying about resources and how can we meet both needs? How can I help you and get what I need at the same time? So that's a maturity that'll, that takes time. I mean, I think it took a lot longer than 10 years for me to get to a level where I was uh, um, feeling comfortable with my skills as an influencer, as opposed to just being a loudmouth brat. <laughs> I don't think you get quite there yet, but soon you're certainly going in the right direction. So I, we, we touched, or Martin touched a little bit about your discussions with with other CISOs in the industry, um, and I was keen to, in a generalized term, because I understand like a lot of these conversations are, are very personal and very specific about about certain aspects that maybe you both want to discuss. But what what are some of the things that you learned from these people, and and you you really maybe went into those conversations? and came out thinking totally different. You totally changed your mind about something just by having those conversations. I, the, the one that stands out to me most brightly, um, at Salesforce, I was a director. I had a pretty large team focused on a couple of different functions related to application security, third-party security. So I had what I felt was a pretty broad level of experience and good business exposure. The question I had as I started to look for a new role was, do I, is there a sort of head of security or CISO job that I can get realistically, or do I have to take another jump before I make that final leap to what I really wanted to do, which was start a security program. And so I was kind of in this place of like, what do I do? Do I make, you know, look for an intermediary job that's different? Like, do I go run, you know, security operations or something, try to build out my skill set a little further or just shoot the moon, go for it. And I talked to Mike Johnson, who's a fellow podcaster uh, and someone I knew from my time at Salesforce. And he was like, don't wait, go for it. You have everything you need. You're coming out of a big enterprise environment. You've had a ton of experience. It may take you longer to find the right fit, but don't sell yourself short. This market needs more technical heads of security or CISOs to fill all these open positions and help these companies. And then that charged me up. I went from being like, well, maybe I'll talk to these other companies about these sort of jobs that I'm not totally excited about, but would build out my experience to CISO or nothing. That's it. And that's where I set my sights for the next couple of months. And it took me, I would say another two or three months to land the job, but he was dead right. I think it takes a special sort of masochist to become a CISO though. I mean, but you do bring up a, a good a good point, which is sometimes in your career, you don't have to, you, you have to look beyond just making incremental changes and incremental improvements in your career and in your, um, in your skill set. You have to, you have to just take a running leap and, and go for what you really want. You'll either learn a heck, heck of a lot from the process, even if you fail miserably, but it, it, it's something you've got to try if you really believe in yourself. 100%. I'm so glad I went for it. But at the same time, I, I couldn't have done it on my own. Like, had I just gone into these interviews without the my network of support, 
I would have not been successful. I think Mike Johnson helped me. Uh, one of my key mentors is the the CISO of Benchling. He sat me down and walked me through what does a you know what does a two year plan at a Series B startup look like? What 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 do they need? What can you do? And what do you know? The other thing that was really critical was negotiating. How do you negotiate? You know your title, your compensation, all of these things my previous jobs had not prepared me for. I was totally just a baby and the mentorship and the network that I had helped me get there. So I think you know, it is important to me to, to sort of pay that back the other direction and mentor people who are coming up behind me because I just couldn't believe how much I needed that help to get to the next jump. But now that I'm there, I'm like, this is great. I can do this job. I, I don't, necessarily need that level of you know mentorship anymore there was just this hurdle that i had to get over to sort of meet the expectations of the next level i think one of the things you mentioned there brings us quite neatly back to how we started this conversation right is about you know job adverts and understanding a little bit about um that aspect of it i mean i've i've been looking at job ads recently um as a result of some of your tiktok stuff but uh, as a result of some some outreach from various people and it's interesting to see how in some occasions, people are very upfront about what they expect and what what you're gonna gonna get out of this. But then, when you try and approach people and say, "What's the salary range on this?" People are just like, "Nope, not sharing salary ranges, not sharing anything like that." Is that a red flag for you when it comes to kind of job job applications, or is that just par for the course now? To a degree, yes. I think when I was looking for the kind of job I was looking for, the CISO job there is a broad range of what that means to companies where for some it was like, you're our first security person. You're going to be our only security person for a year and a half. Congrats on being the CISO. I've seen, I've seen some wonderful CISO jobs where it's like expected uh, skill sets, Python scripting. And you're like, wait a minute. I didn't expect my CISO to be writing scripts and Yara rule uh, authoring. And I'm like, okay, this sounds more like a, you know, yes, you're the CISO by definition of being the only person in security. Right. And that's not, not what I was looking for. I was looking to scale out a program, build something big. So I think having salary expectations in mind that are aligned with the job you're trying to get actually helped where I didn't necessarily ask for the salary range. Uh, the advice I got was just lead with, here are my salary expectations. And that just cut a significant number of companies just straight out which is terrifying when you're looking for a job because you don't want to exclude any opportunities. But really in this scenario, it was a time thing. It's like excluding those ones that were never going to meet what you were looking for actually made my job hunt a lot easier. So one thing I have to ask, I mean, historically security people change jobs, change roles a lot. I, I know somebody who's been, who'd been a CISO for 20 or almost 20 years He's a outlier. He, there's not very many people that are, are take on a role of CISO and hold it for more than two or three years. Um, should, the same goes for almost every level of security. Should be people be thinking about sort of that exit strategy from the beginning of what am I going to be able to do here? How long is it going to take me to do it? And should I be thinking about moving on to the next role, to the next challenge? in two, three, four years, even if I like the job. Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on your life circumstances. 
But I, I like to think, and the advice I was given very early on in my career is when you're looking at a job, judge it by how it prepares you for the next job. And so when you, when you enter that mindset of like, this isn't my forever job, this is a job I'm using to level up and get to another job, then you suddenly have some levers that you can pull and, and, and change. So suddenly title becomes negotiable, salary becomes negotiable, because these are all things that you can decide whether you want more of or less of in order to get to the next place. So for me, um, title was more important because this was me establishing myself as a head of security. So that title, head of security, was non-negotiable. I wasn't going to take a job that didn't have that title because that, at the bare minimum, was what I wanted and is the acceptable, like, sort of lowest bar of a CISO in the industry. And to get that title, I was willing to accept maybe slightly less compensation. Maybe, you know, other things were more negotiable. And I think for everyone who's looking at a job, you can kind of move those sliders up and down a little bit to say, maybe this isn't the salary that I want, but this title, this job, this experience is going to propel me for years to come. Or, you know, maybe this isn't, you know, the title I want, but the salary is bananas and that's awesome. And that's going to let me do some things in my personal life that I couldn't before. I've always wondered about the, the, the kind of job hopping stuff. I mean, personally, in my career, I've spent long periods of time working for companies, you know, upwards of between seven and 10 years with, with companies in various different countries. And I've always, I've been happy with that, right? Um, but other people are, you know, every two years, every 18 months, they skip to the next company. And I've always wondered if that's not a US specific thing, but maybe like a Bay Area specific thing where moving to the next company is literally getting on the other bus that's on the other side of the road and going to a different office. There's no, there's no need to move. There's no need to you know change anything. It's literally I put a different badge on my belt and I get on a different bus, but I do exactly what I did before. But now I earn ten percent more. Whereas in Europe, but you're it's always like, on the short bus. I'm, you're always on I'm the always, short bus, Chris. Always, always on the <laughs> on the group transfer. Um, but it's I mean, in Europe. It's unless you're in London or one of the other large cities. Um, it's like oh, if I if I take another job. I have to move. I have to move to Amsterdam. I have to move to London. I have to, you know, move to Vienna, right, or something like that. I had to move to, to come and work for Google when I when I joined Google. So that's never really been part of my culture, and I've always wondered if it's just convenient in those kind of areas to just take whatever. There, there is definitely some convenience. I, I remember when people left Salesforce and went to Slack, and it was literally across the park, like. There's this raised park, Salesforce is on one side, Slack is on the other side. So you could still meet in the middle and hang out with the exact same people you work with at Salesforce, but work at Slack. So there is some of that locational, you know, nearness that helps. Splunk's near there too, isn't, aren't they? Yep. Yeah, but yeah there's a, there was a huge concentration. But Salesforce hasn't bought Splunk yet, so... That's true. <laughs> Welcome back, Slack yeah, people. You go to Slack and then we bring you right bring you back. <laughs> but you, you come back at, at L plus one. That's the how it works. You go, you go to another company, then you get acquired, and then you come back at L plus one. I do think that that job hopping comes at a little bit of a cost. And I was, I was 10 years at Salesforce, and I did that math for myself pretty often, which is I'm at a company. I have really strong, established relationships, people who support me, you know, and that support is critical to driving up to the next level. Like I started on the Salesforce security team as associate, entry level, basically, and I left as a director. And I, I wouldn't have been able to make that progression. That was like five or six promotions across 10 years without people above me who championed me, supported me, gave me new opportunities. And 
had I hopped jobs, I don't know that I would have progressed as quickly because I wouldn't have had those deep relationships. And so I probably sacrificed a little bit of salary staying at Salesforce for so long because, you know, when you job hop, you get those salary bumps. But I don't think I sacrificed title. I think I did quite well at Salesforce. And so, you know, there is a, a little bit of math on both sides of staying or leaving. So another element as well to, to you know, moving to different companies. Uh, this was something that, that came up for me personally pre-pandemic where it was like, I've if you've been with a company for four or five years, you've proven that you're a good worker and you can work reliably. If your situation changes and you need to work remote, you have more experience there. People know who you are. You, they know that you're good at your job. They know how you fit into the team. Working remotely for six months, I had to go to Dubai for four months. And and having spent long enough at the company, that wasn't so much of an issue, right? Whereas if you're new through the door, you've only been here six months, it's like, hey, we don't know how you work. We don't know whether or not you're going to go to Dubai and just sit on the beach for four months and not do any work. So I guess post-pandemic with a little bit more acceptance of remote work, which is a totally different conversation, I think that maybe isn't so useful yeah. anymore. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, certainly pre-pandemic, that was one of the things that, that came to me. It does feel like a whole new world. Like my, in my new role, all the, all the people know about me is this view. They see this room and that's it. I could go, you know, I could go to Hawaii, show them a different room and just be like, oh, I'm in my you know, downstairs office. Yeah. It works. I mean, just who, get, who knows? just just always fake your background and then just keep yeah. the fake background wherever you are. So, um, I mean, there's, there's going to be elements of that, I think, that start to come up is that, especially when people realize that if, if you're going to work remotely and you change location and suddenly your package changes because working in San Francisco is, is a higher pay than working in Oklahoma for a random location right at that point it's like well why am i going to tell you i've moved i'm just going to say i haven't moved and pretend it's it's gonna it's gonna happen to certain people i imagine yeah i had kind of the reverse of that which is i'm based in san francisco i got a new job that is at a company that is global remote and so the the, the conversation there was well this is your salary you can take it anywhere in the u.s but I'm in the most expensive place in the U.S. It's like, well, move if you want to. I don't want to, so I just have to suck that up. Yeah, I, I, think, okay. I think that's, I mean, it's the downside of it, right, is that you know, if, if people do choose to move for quality of life purposes and you end up taking a 20% pay cut, that's, that's hard to swallow because it's like, <laughs> last week I did this work and I got paid this. Now I've moved somewhere else and I do the same work, but I'm getting paid less. This is, it's it's feels wrong, but it's kind of not. But on the other hand, Chris, if if I I live in or near Orlando, Florida, so I couldn't buy the house I live in in San Francisco. I if, it would cost four or five times the the amount just for the house, not even and not even to have a little bit of land around it. So it it is sometimes worth it. It is it, like so many things in our careers, it's got to be a an equation. What's it worth to me to live in this area? Is it worth taking uh, of basically, yeah, I'm making 20% more, but I'm paying 50% more for my house. That may be, may be the case. I'm from the Bay Area myself, so I understand why Kyle would live there. Um, I would desperately love to leave Florida, but can't for various reasons. Um, once the once they get you, to... once they get you, they're never going <laughs> to let you go. That's it. You're Florida I, man now. I, I am Florida man. That brings up kind of a, a 
Oh God, I lost it now. Never mind. Back to somebody else talking. <laughs> so, I mean, I and feel, yes, you can keep that in. We're totally, we're totally leaving that one in. It's a, <laughs> a senior moment there from Martin. <laughs> Astute point. Excellent question. Yes, I like that. Possibly the best point that's ever been raised on this podcast. Amazing. Well done. <laughs> I mean, I to, to go back a little bit to, to location wise. I mean, I feel you in in Zurich. I'm not allowed to buy ha- a house in Switzerland, right? So I have to rent. And even if I did want to buy a house, I think the apartment we rent, we don't pay a huge amount of money for it, but like to, to buy it, it'd be like one and a half million dollars to buy a three-bedroom apartment in not a great location near Zurich. Not in Zurich, but near <laughs> Zurich. And it's like, it's stupid. It's, it's crazy. Whereas you can move like an hour outside and get something for half the price. But, you know convenience it's just it's you know it's, it's i'm lazy what else can i say <laughs> so i think uh, what i was going to say earlier is about the learning to work from home and that's something that a lot of people have had to do this last year um, and it's something people should be thinking about as they're starting a career quite frankly i think most people starting the career should try and work in the office they should be there around others because you can't develop a relationship over Zoom. I mean, it just, or WebEx or Google or whatever. It's just not the same as actually sitting down and having lunch with somebody as much as it's nice. And there's a, there's a lot of issues that you, we need to sort of learn to address. Uh, uh, just getting work done when you don't have somebody over your shoulder or you, you don't have set hours because, hey, I can start work at, at, at 10 o'clock if that's when my first meeting is. And I might have to be on meetings at nine o'clock because I'm working with somebody in Dubai who's just up silly hours. Ha, I'm back now. You can't blame me. But I, I do get it. Like that erosion of personal space is like I sit at this desk to do a podcast with these horrible people on my screen. And then I sit at this desk to work and there's no separation of of environment, right? This is like, if, if I choose to play a computer game, I'm sitting on the same desk. And and that kind of mismatch of, of all different things in a single place really does play with your mind after a while. And I feel like remote, like I was very much an in-the-office kind of person. And one of the things I loved was sort of the culture building that you could do in an office environment where it wasn't necessarily job-related, but I mentioned before that I ran a board game meetup. This was something I did after work, at the office, bring people in from from all around the area. And we would meet up every Tuesday. And we got to the point where it was like 200 people leaving their offices at five o'clock, coming over to the Salesforce, playing board games for four hours. I don't know how you could replicate an experience like that when everyone's remote. It, it would just be so hard to get people interested in that. And you could just, it's just impossible. Although I I would like it if the technology was there to be like, hey, after the podcast, does everyone want to play a board game? And everyone be like, sure. And then you just click a button and you're <laughs> playing a board game. That'd be great, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah. As long as it's not Settlers of Catan, because I have played literally thousands of games <laughs> of Settlers of Catan with my wife and with friends. <laughs> Something other than that. Um, like Settlers of Catan 2? Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. That's it. I, although I, I did hear the the best the best thing on Twitter today would be uh, uh, arrange four dates on Tinder at once, get them to all meet at the same location, and when they arrive, hand them character sheets and tell them you're playing Dungeons and Dragons. 
pandemic's over, everyone's got vaccinated within reason. This seems perfectly reasonable. Let's get this done. Uh, quick question, Carl. Is there anything you wanted to cover on the topics that we've covered that we haven't touched on already? Covered. That's a good question. Um, if you could ask one I question. Like, now. If okay. I could ask one question. Yeah. I mean, I know what you do, Chris. I'm curious. One thing that, that I encountered in my new job is suddenly at Salesforce, I was responsible for third-party security when we were buying things. Now I'm on the other end. People are buying our product and I'm responsible for responding to them. <laughs> and my view on the other side is very different from when I was, you know, the one sending the questionnaires. Uh, I'm curious, how has SolarWinds changed your experience doing third-party security? Oh, wow. Oh, that's, that's an easy question. That should take no more than a few seconds to answer. Um, I mean, those kind of things, right? Because SolarWinds is like one example of a number of, of different things. The, the recent one was the... Um, Kaseya. Kaseya, right? Which Kaseya, is the, with the yeah. ransomware stuff. And it's it's a hard problem. Like, I mean, how level? How many levels do you go, right? It's like you're, you're integrating with a third party and they integrate with a third party who integrates with a third party who uses this. And at some point, this just comes up as a supply chain issue five layers down. And it's... It's a very difficult issue to, to resolve. One of the interviews we did recently, the, the last podcast was about um, software bill of materials, which mm. maybe doesn't address the SolarWind stuff. We specifically mentioned it doesn't address the SolarWind stuff, but it, but it goes that step further in the kind of idea of knowledge as power. It's like, I don't know everything that all of your vendors are doing, but if you review your vendors all in the same way and we can ask you what you're doing then we would expect you to do the same thing going down but that that sets a lot of expectations and it means you're outsourcing a lot of your risk to, to third parties um there is no clean yes no just just enable this there's a silver silver bullet for you and even if there was it wouldn't be real and it would probably come from rsa and, and that chris i kind of think you hit the, the important part of that which is SBOM, a lot of the things that, that folks like Google can do aren't accessible to an average company. So many of those guys, hey, you don't have multi-factor authentication in. You don't have access control under control. Though if you can't do those things, you shouldn't be getting too deep into SBOM or or any of the other things. If you just can't if you can't even terminate a worker correctly and actually remove his account in less than six months. So th that's the, the other side of it. But that, it all comes down to if, if everyone was doing their security basics in a, in a scalable way that, they, that everyone could say, yeah, we're doing the security basics right, how would that affect a lot of this stuff? Right? We're coming at it from the other direction of how can we, as large companies, figure out that a, a company we're dealing with is having issues down the line. But if we're trying to say everyone needs to reach this bar, otherwise there's going to be problems. How do you start to push that? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope to hope to we can we can move the needle on that space. <laughs> Let's just say that. But I mean, it's it's very difficult saying to everyone, you know, get your shit together, right? This is like it's like stop stop thinking about how you can implement the next big thing and think about here's ten things that we absolutely have to do. If you haven't got two FA or MFA implemented. Don't even think about the new box with the flashy lights. You don't need it. What you need is to spend time doing multi-factor auth, right? 
it's it's not rocket science, but also people want to spend money on licenses. And if you can spend money on licenses for a new technology, that means you don't have to do any real work, then problem solved. I mean, we have a head of security here who can tell you this. It's all about buying technology. It's not about actually doing real work. <laughs> Kyle, you now have your marching orders as for your no role of, of getting all those basics in place. Otherwise, Chris is going to come back and make fun of both of us again. Yes. Although I will say, you know, like Chris, Google, Google is good at, at vetting its vendors. My experience, most of the people who are vetting their vendors are struggling to do so in a way that I think would be effective, having done it for many years. Uh, I'm now trapped in a number of conversations where it's like I'm talking to robots who do not understand the, the actual conversation they're trying to have. An example would be uh, a questionnaire where someone asks, do you use WPA2 for your wireless? And I respond, we're 100% remote, no wireless. And they come back, but why don't you use WPA2? That's a risk. It's like, but let me reiterate, we do not have wireless. This is not part of the threat model. Um, there really, there really has to be a human at some point that takes a look at that and goes, "This question." That this, is a human. This, this, that is a human I, asking those questions. That's an auditor asking those questions. That's, that's yeah, not that's the a, same as a human being. Yes. I mean, but but, but this is this is going to be a problem that's going to come up more when people work remote. Because companies who could have just definitively said yes to that two years ago are now like, I have no idea. Do you have like uh, ARP spoofing turned on on all of your switches? Like, I have no idea. We have thousands of employees. They all have switches somewhere, probably, right? It's, um, but, but we're also going down that avenue of now that everyone's working remotely, there's a lot of increase in um, companies that, don't provide hardware to people anymore. It's like you work for us now. Do you have a Do you have a laptop? You know, just use your laptop. You know, just log into this web portal. And then when you ask about how do you how do you do patch management on your computer system, the answer is we don't because we don't own the computers. How how do you even measure the risk of that, right? And for for one company, that's fine. Everyone owns their own stuff. It's the best model in the world. But for other people at the other end of the scale, it's like how can we measure the risk that using this presents to 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 a company it's you know there's a lot of midpoints there there's a lot of difficulties but uh, i'm going to go and check my wpa2 question in the questionnaire to make sure there's an other option <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, and you know that's where i hope when i'm talking to a human that they would have some flexibility to understand this is the kind of solution we're buying these are the risks i need to ask questions that you know tell me how you're mitigating the actual risks. And what I find is that most of these third-party diligence programs are just working off of a framework like NIST CSF, and they have 100 questions. They go down the punch list, and no matter, even if 50 of them don't apply, they're asking them anyway, and you better have an answer. And But but even companies, I mean, we, we, use a very, uh, we use a very customized version of stuff. We have our own processes. We write our own questions. We have our own flow um, for what we do, and we've been doing that for a long time. But then there's always going to be a company who you say, can you complete this questionnaire? And the answer is, we've already done this on one of those platforms that has the standard questions. Can't you just use those? So you, you get pulled in that direction, even if you think that that might not be the best <laughs> solution, because people don't want to fill out 5, 10, 15 different questionnaires. And there's a lot of scale scaling issues and, and various complications there that are probably something we could talk about for several hours on a podcast. And we should probably do that at some point. That's a whole nother podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is a well, big challenge. 
And we could include the other end of the spectrum where, hey, it's it's in a container somewhere or it's edge computing or it's some other sort of computing that really hasn't become popular yet, but somebody's doing it. And and how do you fit that into PCI or, or ISO 27001 or, God forbid, FedRAMP? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we, 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 we touched a little bit on FedRAMP in the, the, the SBOM podcast. That was... Um... Uh. I am also going through FedRAMP. It's very exciting. You will be twitchy by the time it's over. Trust me. Um, <laughs> Already twitchy. It's it, it, it harks back to FIPS compliance, where it's like, you want me to make my security worse so you can tick the box. I'd rather not. Can we just keep the security at the level it's at? No, no, it has to be worse in order to get the tick. Okay. This happens a lot with the NIST password guidance, actually, where people are like, you have to have these strict password controls. And it's like, that, that is not the best practice. We are not doing that. And you just bump heads over that because they they are set in what they believe it should be, even if that guidance has moved in the past few years. Yeah, NIST have released a, a revision three that does some of the some of that correction work, right? I think, but it's overly complicated. Um, I think uh, having looked at it recently, one of the things is I was working on some minimum baseline guidance and our guidance was don't put a maximum on char set. You can set whatever you want as your char set, whatever you want as your length. And then the NIST guidance is whatever you want, but at a minimum 64. And you're like, okay, so you're saying 64, right? Um, I think it was 60. Yeah, it must have been 64. But it's um, it's like, okay, so you're still putting a limit on it. But Reading, check. Retention, not, not so, so much. Not so much. Not only that, but I think it was on page like 274 of the NIST guidance that you finally reached that point where you're just like, I, 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 used, I used search to find this. I did not read 273 pages in order to find this one point that I wanted to read. So um, yeah, plus points for being simple. <laughs> not so much, but well, maybe you can come on in uh, a few years time and tell us how you, how you found FedRAMP. I will, yeah. And I'll be on the other end of my CISO journey. First company, you know, a few years in, hopefully successful. Yeah, maybe acquired TV. acquired by Salesforce and uh, you're back at Salesforce, but uh, v- VP level, right? That's the dream. That's the dream. Cool. Thank you. Well, uh, I think uh, with that, we will call a, a close to, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Carl, for taking the time to come and chat with us about a range of topics today. I think there's a whole Thank load more. It's a whole lot more we could talk about, but uh, we've been going for a while. So um, thank you very much and uh, hope to have you again on the podcast. Thank you. I'd love to. And we're out. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org. F I R S T D O T O R G. You can also find more information about First and the First Impressions podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening.